This is Hemant Mehta for the Friendly Atheist Podcast. Jessica will be back next week. If you like what you're listening to, please go to patreon.com slash friendly atheist podcast. Andrew Copson is the chief executive of Humanists UK, formerly known as the British Humanist Association, as well as the current president of the International Humanist and Ethical Union. He also studied classics and ancient and modern history at the University of Oxford. His new book is called Secularism, simply enough, and it's a primer on the history of the philosophy, what it means today, and how it offers a solution to some of the biggest conflicts in the world. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Let me just start out with a pretty basic question here that I think may still be important. What is the difference between a secular society and, let's say, an atheistic society? Because I know a lot of people tend to make those two synonymous. Yeah, this is a a common uh, conceptual confusion, especially, I think, in North America. Um, And I think, to some extent, it's a legacy um, of uh, the sort of cultural fear of of communism and the Soviet Union. Um, Obviously, the Soviet Union, uh, you know, pretended to be a secular state, but was, in fact, a very atheist one. And I think that that has tarnished the brand to some extent um, of of the secular state. But a secular state is a long, long way from being an atheist one. If you think about uh, the origins of secularism and about the states in the world today that are secular, like France, like the United States of America, like India, these are states that are secular because they have a separation of religious institutions from state institutions They try and give citizens and others within the borders um, the greatest possible freedom of belief that they that they can compatible with the rights of others. And they treat people equally. They don't discriminate against them on grounds of religion or belief um, or in favor of them on grounds of religion or belief. Those are the things that make a state secular as opposed to, you know, being a religious state or an atheist state. Um, And it's true that historically, a lot of the proponents of secularism uh, have been personally non-religious. But. A lot of the proponents of secularism have been religious, people like Gandhi in India, um, people uh, in the United States at the time of the revolution there who were uh, religious believers. So there is a, a big, big difference between a state that is atheist and a state that is secular. There actually have never really been many atheist states in the history of uh, human beings. Um, I can think of maybe I could only think of two or three for, for, for the book. Um Albania, Cuba, um, the Soviet Union at some periods in history and not at others. Um, So they're two very, very different things. And the UK, of course, because there is an official religion there that you would not call a secular state? No, the UK is not a secular state. Um, Parts of the UK have almost secular states. So, for example, um, the national administration in Scotland uh, is secular the national administration in Wales uh, and in Northern Ireland are secular, and the church was disestablished uh, in Wales and in Northern Ireland uh, in the past. Um, but England is a, a Christian state, and the UK itself is a Christian state, so um, not a secular one. Now, of course, like many European <laughs> states, um, a lot, the majority of its political business is secular in practice. So it's been a long time since you know the church is literally ruled uh, Europe. So this is a strange irony then that England, which you're saying is religious in nature, versus the United States, which 
is theoretically secular, and yet it feels like we see a lot more religiosity in the United States, um, and yeah. not just religiosity, but religious power in government. So yeah. are we almost better off with a uh, like an official state religion? Well, Would that be better you know, that's for us? a fascinating question. And a lot of people, you know, some people have seriously advanced this argument that, you know, established churches might be better ways of securing freedom and equality than uh, secular states are. I mean, I don't think that's true. Um, but you're right that there is a, there is a sort of, there's no necessary connection between having a secular state and having a non-religious society. Now, the UK has one of the most non-religious societies in the world. You know, the majority of people in the UK don't have a religious identity. The majority of people in the UK don't have religious beliefs and a large majority of them don't engage in any sort of religious practice. You know, we're a, we're a mostly non-religious society, but we have a religious state. Um, in America, the United States of America, like you say, um, there's a secular state, but a quite religious society. And the two um, things don't, you know don't necessarily have to have to go together. So it shouldn't surprise us necessarily that that's the case, although it does look strange. It looks odd, um, especially if your assumption is that a secular state will be there because, you know, society is uh, non-religious. Um, and, of course, a country like India, which has a secular state, is is a very also very religious country um, in, in practice, especially in identity terms. So secular states don't mean necessarily non-religious uh, societies. Whether or not, you know, your second question, whether or not the secularity of the state has something to do with um, the power of religion in society, I think that's a very interesting question. There's no doubt that American secularism, um, you know, as distinct from French secularism or Indian secularism, there's no doubt that American secularism explicitly is designed to protect religious people from the state. You know, there's freedom from religion envisaged in the American uh, constitution, of course, but th there's, it's primarily really freedom of religion that secularism is meant to guarantee. And I think for that reason, um, religious uh, life in the United States hasn't been interfered with by the secular state in the way people might argue it has been in in the past in Turkey or in France or, or in India. Um, so the secular state might be a reason why there's uh, a very religious population. Um, but I think we'd need, you know, more evidence. And with all types of historical claims, of course, it's, it's very hard to run the experiment again, right? It's quite, <laughs> it's quite hard to, well, it's impossible to go back in time and give the fledgling United States a Christian constitution to see whether or not it would have made society less religious or, or more. I'm I don't sure there think are people who would like to run that experiment. Yeah, <laughs> that's not an experiment that I would like to see. Um, the UK, of course, uh, is a very non-religious society, but I don't think that has much to do with the fact that we have a Christian state. Um, I think it's much more to do with the fact that um, we've had a non-religious uh, society for a very long time that the you know being the first country to be the first society to industrialize then being you know the first society to do all sorts of very uh, significant things the fact that the the UK has been a country whose society has encountered a lot of other civilizations in its time you know uh, the encounter with indian thought and with chinese civilizations and with other uh, ways of thinking and doing things has you know helped secular help the secularization of society um, in the UK and all sorts of 
uh, ways, urbanization, um, the welfare state, uh, high levels of social security relative to other parts of the world, you know, the scientific revolution, um, the British Enlightenment and so on, um, I think have all uh, been far more important political and economic and social factors than the fact that the Church of England remains established. What do you say to religious people who might come up to you and ask you, why is secularism good for them? Because, like you said, if some people take that as being atheistic, they they may not want to see separation of church and state. What's your argument to them as to why they should basically buy what you're selling? Well, some people are never going to be persuaded, of course. Um, and, you know, some people are immune to any sort of discussion about these points because their mind is already made up. You know, theocratic opponents of secularism are in that category. You know, then you're never going to have persuaded the Ayatollah Khomeini that liberal democracy and a secular state was the right way to go because he was convinced that, or at least he said he was convinced, he claimed to be convinced that, you know, God had said exactly how. Uh, the state should be ordered, and it was just his obligation to follow those rules. So some people are never going to convince. But if I assume that the religious person I'm speaking to um, wants to be free, cares about freedom uh, for themselves, and if I'm also going to assume that the religious person I'm talking to wants fairness in society, wants some fair treatment, both of themselves and of others, um, then I think that we uh, who uh, advocate secularism can make a pretty convincing case because it is hard um, to imagine that human freedom can be given full development in a situation where the state lays, you know, limits your choices for you, uh, lays down what its religion is going to be, uh, promotes that religion through its state institutions, for example, in public schools, makes decisions for you about what the law says you can and can't do based on its religion, not your own beliefs. It's hard to envisage how human freedom can really flourish in that sort of situation. And it's hard also to envisage how such a state um, could could really treat people fairly. I mean, let's say that the founding fathers of the United States had decided um, that the Constitution uh, shouldn't ban religious tests for public office. And in fact, they were going to um, uh, require all uh, public officials and all state employees of every kind to be uh, non-conforming Protestants, let's say. I mean, clearly, plainly, that would be unfair on all the other uh, citizens of the United States who uh, believed something different. So if I'm assuming that uh, the religious person I'm speaking to um, has a commitment to the rights of others, has a certain level of compassion and empathy, um, and wants to see some fairness uh, in the world, as well as be free themselves, then I think they're the sorts of arguments that I would make. I mean, some religions, of course, have uh, you know, distinctively religious cases for secularism. If you think about a, a Christian denomination like the Baptists, um, who were some of the first advocates of state secularism in uh, in the West, their, their theology is such that it was then, it is still now, their theology is such that no one can come between the human person and God. You know, a person's religious life is between them and God. And since it's on that person, whether they believe or not, and they'll have to suffer the consequences after this life is over of uh, whatever their beliefs are, um, there's no uh, legitimate uh, 
uh, reason why the king, as it then was, or government, uh, as it as it now is, should seek to come between that individual and God. That's a very distinctive uh, Christian theological you know, case for secularism. You know, the Baptists used to say, you know, "The king shall not answer for." Uh, you know, the individual's conscience, so he shouldn't try to dictate it either. So there are Christian arguments like that. Um, there are uh, arguments made by uh, Muslims on the basis of uh, Quranic texts about how there shouldn't be any compulsion in religion to justify uh, secular states, and there are stories from the Bible that are used by uh, some Christians. And of course, you know, very devout uh, Hindu believers like uh, Mahatma Gandhi himself um, found resources within their own uh, religious beliefs to advocate secularism. So I think that that you know there's no reason to assume that um, religious believers will, because of their religious belief, necessarily uh, be opponents of secularism, and in some cases quite the opposite. So I I hope that um, either because they're reasonable, compassionate people, or because their religions might even point them in this direction too. I hope that most religious believers um, are persuadable of the case for secularism. When it comes to when it comes to advocating for secularism, where do you see what do you see as the greatest challenges? And I ask this on a global scale in the UK and in the US. Well, globally, I think that the biggest challenge for uh, those who want the state to be secular is probably the rise of um, what I might loosely call sort of cultural and ethnic nationalism. So with the current government of India, for example, which is uh, for the first time in India, a, a Hindu nationalist or Hindu conservative uh, government um, with uh, the Islamism of Erdogan and his party in Turkey and with the uh, Russian state, you know, Putinism, as it were, um, which is also in its project of uh, national unity and uh, strong uh strongman actions has sort of yoked the orthodox church uh to it in you know to be part of this ethnic uh nationalism so i think all of those uh are all of those negative features of the world today which threaten secularism and threaten the secular state and threaten a lot of other liberal institutions as well but they certainly threaten the secular state um all of those, I think, are manifestations of a sort of cultural ethnic nationalism, which is uh, rising in the world right now. Uh, of course, that's before you even begin to consider uh, Islamic fundamentalism in the Arab world and in Southeast Asia, which similarly um, is often, especially in Southeast Asia, part of the project of nation building uh, in the in the hands of uh, some pretty nationalistic uh, and certainly very fundamentalist uh, political actors. So I think that that's the global challenge, really, is you know, uh, ethnic nationalism, religious fundamentalism. The challenge in the UK, oh, I suppose <laughs> it's difficult to look at your own uh, country with the same sort of detachment as you might try to apply to other countries. I, I try to do it, obviously, in connection with the UK. The UK's problem, I think, is a sort of is a sort of conservatism, small c conservatism, a sort of inertia, um, because although we do have probably the biggest mismatch in the world between state and society, you know, we have a very Christian state um, and a very non-religious society, you know, the mismatch between the two is very is very great. Um, people don't tend to think much about that or care much about it. 
Um, they care about individual manifestations of it. So the fact that they might not be able to get their child into the local state you know, public school because that school is one of our public schools that are run by a church and they choose who to admit on religious grounds. Right. So pe people care about it in those flashpoints in their lives. But in the round, they don't care about it too much. And so I think that a sort of uh, inert attitude uh, a sort of conservatism uh, in, in the UK is probably the biggest opponent of the chance of our state ever being secular. Um, and, the, you know, never had a successful permanent uh, revolution in the UK, never got round to writing a constitution, never had to face those sort of tough decisions about what sort of state, you know, we will have. Um, and so as a result, you know, those those decisions have never been taken and things have you know, just continued as they as they have been. The exceptions, as I said before, are Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales, which in their own national uh, governments beneath the UK government um, have actually established secular states. Um, but uh, elsewhere, I think just the lack of political innovation in the UK um, is the biggest threat to a future secular state. In the United States, I mean, that's very difficult. I think the United States, um, although uh, politics has become um, uh, very much uh, religionized in, in large portions, um, it hasn't become a Christian state. You know, the state is still secular. And um, if, this, if the secular nature of the state hasn't prevented this Christianization of politics, um, at least it will allow the de-Christianization of politics over time, um, which I think will will happen again over time. Um, and I think that the United States, in spite of that, remains um, a very good example uh, of a political unit that allows a large measure of freedom of religion or belief, freedom of thought, conscience, and so on and so forth. Um, probably one of the uh, most free societies in that respect um, in history. And so I think that the resilience of the of American secularism uh, in terms of state secularism um, will probably uh, prove to be very great, as resilient as the nature of the US Constitution. Um, so I think that those things will probably, uh, that, you know, current, current problems um, will clear themselves up. And of course, Although the two don't necessarily go hand in hand, um, it is often the case that as society becomes less religious, state secularism is easier to uh, protect and enforce. And I think it's clear that there is a non-religionization of American society, although, albeit from a much higher base than we're used to in Europe, um, which will play its part in, I think, re-secularizing uh, politics in the state over the medium term. That would be, you know, predictions are notoriously impossible. Mm -hmm. Now I've said that probably next week, President Trump will declare a theocracy or something. <laughs> I wouldn't put it behind uh, him. Yeah. Completely <laughs> refuted. But um, uh, yeah, I, I'd be relatively hopeful. I'd be much more hopeful about the United States secularism than I would be about secularism in the world in general. Is there, speaking of which, is there like a model secular country that you could say this is a country that's doing it right? Well, I think it's very hard to say that. Um, first of all, there are lots of different definitions uh, of uh, state secularism. In the book and in general, um, I am a big fan of the definition by the French 
scholar Barbaro, who says that secularism has three parts. The first is the separation of religious institutions and state institutions. The second is the freedom of thought, conscience, religion and belief. Um, and the third is equal treatment of people based on uh, religion and belief, as I, as I said earlier on. And I think if you take that definition of Barbaro, um, which is by and large the definition also used by uh, secularist activists uh, today and in the past, and in many secular states' constitutions as well. So it's a, it's a real working definition. If you take that definition and try and uh, see whether there are any states in the world today that match up to it, you know, that compare well with it, I think that, uh, like I say, the United States does relatively well. I think France does relatively well. Um, and I think that um, India does relatively well too. Uh, but all states... Those three types of secularism, though, in America, France and India, are all very different from each other, um, as well as all according more or less with Barbara's definition. They have a lot of distinctive characteristics to them as well. So I don't think there's one single recipe uh, for a secular state, because although the values that underpin secularism are universal, um, the way in which it's constituted in practice in different states will inevitably be dependent on national history, national culture, the political situation at the point when secularism was or will be um, uh, made formal, made official, um, the religious demography of the country in question. Um, so you can say, you can point to states that have good constitutions, you know, where all the wording is excellent and that really should, in theory, match up. The constitution of Fiji is a good recent example um, which has got a, an exemplar clause in its constitution about the secular nature of the state. Um, but going beyond that, going beyond black letter law to uh, what the real situation is on the ground, um, I think it's more difficult to, to, to say. And the problem is that every secularism is different uh, from each other. What do you see as the biggest problem that you think we as activists can actually overcome or maybe solve, you know, before our lifetime? I thought, well, um, again, of course, it depends where we are in the world. Um, I think that, uh, that that is a big factor in answering that question. Um, if I try to, I'll try to give an international answer first um, and then maybe think about some specific countries. Internationally, I think that secularists' best hope, um, and I think that also this is the best hope, by the way, of humanists on the moral front as well as uh, secularists on the political front i think the best uh, task we can set ourselves to at the present time is defending um the international human rights order um i think that i mean this year is the 70th anniversary of the universal declaration of human rights um of course uh, no uh, human made thing is ever perfect there's no such thing as perfection uh, in this in this reality and no reason to believe that there is perfection in any other either um, but the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the concept of legal human rights, fundamental universal human rights for every person um, in general, I think is the best hope um, for uh, secularists on, on the political front. The, the Universal Declaration itself, you know, is a is a high high point in the 20th century in 1914 of secularist achievement, both because it contains strong guarantees uh, on things like freedom of thought and conscience, freedom of expression, freedom of belief, uh, freedom of association, which is sec which secularism wants to protect, um, but also because 
in drafting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It wasn't just people from one culture or one tradition or one country um, or one ethnicity that were involved. You know, uh, representatives from states all over the world voted to adopt the Universal Declaration. People from many different cultures were involved in writing it. It draws its inspiration from um, all sorts of uh, human thought and philosophy and belief uh, and conviction. Um, and in that way, it's not just secularist in content, it's secularist in the way it was brought into being. So I think that if states in today's world, uh, especially big rights abusing states like Russia or China or uh, Turkey or, or Islamic states, but also plenty of other states as well in the West, um, if states really took seriously their commitment and their obligations under international human rights uh, treaties, then I think a lot of problems would be solved. And so and on the flip side of the coin, if we continue this drift away from uh, seeking to enforce uh, international human rights treaties, then things will get, you know, I think pretty bad uh, pretty quickly. And you only need to remember what the world was like in the decades before the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and those terrible events which inspired and motivated the adoption of the Universal Declaration to see how bad it could get. So I think it's important, you know, the work that organisations uh, human rights organizations and humanist uh, organizations do in the international institutions like the United Nations um, and in lobbying their own governments to both observe human rights norms and uh, lobby other governments to observe human rights norms, whether through sanctions or diplomatic means, is probably uh, the most important, the highest impact thing that we could do internationally. Now, I think Locally and in, 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 in regionally in particular countries, um, the struggles will all be different. Um, I think that in the UK, for example, the biggest uh, campaign uh, would be around the public school system, uh, which you know is entirely taxpayer funded, um, but a third of which is controlled by churches or other religious groups which control curriculum and admissions and all other sorts of things. So... And in other countries, the target of campaigning uh, zeal will be will be different. What are the biggest issues that you're working on with Humanist UK right now? Well, um, precisely what I was just talking about, actually, which is the uh, what are called faith schools uh, in our national jargon, um, the state-funded religious schools that uh, often select uh, their pupils on religious grounds and always teach a very uh, particular religious uh, curriculum. And how um, are you actually going about trying to change that then? So a lot of, uh, well, in lots of different ways. So a lot of work is done locally because lots of schools are either set up or monitored locally, so through lobbying uh, local authorities, local councils, county councils. Um, a lot of work is done nationally. There's a, uh, a humanist group in Parliament of 120 parliamentarians Um and Humanist UK and its its members uh, obviously lobby in Parliament. A lot of work is done with government, um, and we meet quite often with uh, the Department for Education in order to uh, try and enforce some of the laws that do exist uh, to restrict the sort of discrimination that occurs um, in religious in state uh, religious schools. So there's a lot of awareness raising there and enforcement and compliance work that we contribute to. Um, but like all uh, political campaigns, um, change has to come uh, from the legislators. 
now the the the, the campaign against uh, faith schools has been boosted in the last 16 years um, because it was in 2002 that um, new religious schools started being opened in serious numbers. Before then, the general feeling, I think, was that they would slowly be phased out, they would wither on the vine, um, that they weren't, you know, they might not be going anywhere fast, but they would slowly uh, normalise, become perhaps more like normal community schools or, or close, uh, so on and so forth. And then in 2002, the British government decided they wanted to actually reverse that trend, increase the number of faith schools, and that gave a big boost to the campaign against faith schools because suddenly they didn't look like a an artifact from history, a bit of rubble from the past that would slowly uh, be eroded, but a new threat to um, liberal education and to secular public services. And in that time, um, the campaign that Humanist UK has been running, I think, has been instrumental in making public opinion turn against state fund funded faith schools. The large majority of the public, I mean, it depends which question you ask, but it's always well over 70 percent. Um, don't think that it's right um, that these schools are being expanded. Um, and a majority also think it's not right that they, they exist at all. Now, the question, obviously, is when does that become an opinion that government can no longer avoid. And the problem here is that there are very powerful lobby groups um, on uh, both the Roman Catholic and the Church of England side um, that are very strong advocates, obviously, of keeping the schools that they run. Um, and you know, the tipping point will come when government no longer has to listen to that lobby um, and instead uh, can listen to both the majority of people in in the country and also the good public policy advice that almost every expert agrees on that to say that schools should be secular um, and uh, for the whole community. Now, when that point comes, uh, I don't know, um, but the job of advocacy organisations in the meantime, I think, is to continue to build the evidence base that shows that uh, such schools are divisive, uh, bad for community cohesion, don't match up to what we want from uh, schools in terms of children's rights and build coalitions with other organizations to make that social change more likely so it's one of the most pleasing uh, features of the of humanist uk's campaign uh, over the last uh, decade and a bit um, has been the support that it increasingly receives from religious leaders um, rabbis and priests who agree that education should be inclusive from education unions i mean we recently had a, a letter published in the daily telegraph which is a, a right-wing newspaper in uh, in the uk um, which was signed not only by uh, lots of humanists and uh, lots of religious leaders, but also by the two general secretaries of the National Education Union, um, who are also uh, concerned and increasingly agreeing with our policy position. So building coalitions with, with the, 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 the end in sight, you know, the point perhaps a couple of decades from now in sight, when government will, will find it uh, more useful to listen to us than to the religious lobbies that they currently appease. I had well, one last question for you. In the introduction to your book, I was so curious about this. You thanked somebody by name who, quote, took out China <laughs> from a draft of the book. And that's an atheistic country, though it's pretty repressive, too. But why not include them? Why not talk about them more? Well, I, I mean, I do talk about them briefly. Um as uh, an example of a state that is, you know, says that it's secular but isn't, um, and um, the yes, Elizabeth O'Casey, 
that's her name, uh, the person who I thank for taking out China. Um, and she is the director of advocacy at Humanist International, previously the International Humanist and Ethical Union. And um, she and I uh, were having a drink uh, in Oslo. I think it was Oslo or Vienna. I can't remember anywhere. It was somewhere away at a meeting. Um, and I was complaining about how it was impossible to cut this book down to the, the right length because <laughs> it's it's a short book. It's intended. It was commissioned by by Oxford University Press to be a, a short introduction uh, to secularism. So it wasn't allowed to be more than thirty five thousand words. And I was having a real struggle because I'd got, you know, sixty thousand words or whatever. I was having a real struggle cutting it down. And I said to her, you know, and I've got this whole chapter on China. Um, and she said, why on earth have you got China? You know, China isn't an example of a secular state. So why would you spend a lot of time looking at China rather than um, states that actually are, you know, do have a legitimate claim to be secular and that must form part of your introduction? If you're going to deal with China, just deal with it um, as being uh, an example of a not really secular state that claims to be. So she took out, uh, she and with that remark, um, uh, she took out uh, the, the China chapter from my mind. So I was very grateful to her <laughs> because it, it saved me a lot of agony and a lot of time. Well, very good. Um, the book is called Secularism, Politics, Religion and Freedom. And Andrew Copson, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you.